0: Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This
1: is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for the Impact Makers Podcast, where my goal is to help you build a career that you love and a life that matters. This week, I'm chatting with another person who is out there making a difference in the world, and I think you'll enjoy and learn a lot from our conversation today. My friend, Dr. Daniel Crosby, is a psychologist and behavioral finance expert who helps organizations understand the intersection of mind and markets. And if you think that all sounds fancy and complicated, well, it definitely is. But somehow, he makes what he does for a living fun, educational, and practical. Dr. Crosby is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of several books, including a book called The Laws of Wealth, Psychology, and the Secret to Investing Success, which was named the best investment book of 2017 by the Axiom Business Book Awards. He also writes for the Huffington Post and Risk Management Magazine, in addition to having a monthly column with WealthManagement.com and Investment News. His unique background, education, and professional experiences certainly make his perspectives on life, human psychology, and money interesting, but it's his humor and practical approach that keeps me paying attention. Following an early career as a clinical psychologist, his next role was working for a company focused on helping organizations to select, develop, and understand their people in order to help them to be happier and more productive at work. Now, as president of his own company, Nocturne Capital, he's considered a leading expert in the field of behavioral finance, which is the psychology of investment decision-making. So even if you think you're not that interested in behavioral finance and the laws of wealth, I think you'll enjoy learning more from Dr. Crosby about humans, money, the importance of therapy, the best predictor of job performance, infusing meaning and purpose into life, handling negative feedback, and using humor to make your messages memorable, which are all things that we cover in our fun and wide-ranging conversation today. Well, good morning, Daniel Crosby. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing better when I see that you have a Diet Coke sign behind you. It makes me feel like we're kindred spirits. Well, people
1: can't see the video here, but we have bonded over Diet Cokes. And, you know, who knows? We may spend the whole uh, next few minutes talking about Diet Cokes. That could be a very interesting conversation, couldn't it?
0: Well, I'm four four deep here at 9 a.m., so I'm ready. (laughs) Well, sounds like we need to stop the interview and
1: do an intervention. Maybe that would be better. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't hurt. Well, I'm so excited to have you here with me today. My goal is to talk to people who can help people um, create a career that they love and a life that matters. And when I thought about who I know that might be good to have a conversation with around those topics, you certainly came to
0: mind. Thank you very much. It's two things that I think about all of the time. Most of my energy is pointed in those two directions, I'll tell you.
1: Well, wonderful. Before we kind of talk about some of the things that you're doing in those areas, I like to kind of start with a little bit about who you are and start wherever you want to take me. Where, Where do we start in the Daniel Crosby career story? life
0: story actually sorry oh yeah so i'll be uh, i'll be freudian and, and and start at the beginning so like a, like any good shrink I'll, I'll be freudian and start at the beginning so i love it yeah i think uh, i think an important part of my story of uh, and something that's animated my search for a meaningful career and just meaning in life uh, is the fact that i was born on the day that my grandfather died so my my maternal grandfather Um, died the day I was born. And we have the same name. I look just like him. We're both entrepreneurs. Uh, And so sharing sort of a strange anniversary with someone who's so important to your family, it has been something that has really animated my search for meaning. He was just 43 years old when he passed. And he's you know, there's always this element of rosy retrospection in a family when someone's passed on. The man's taken on sort of a a mythic status. I'm sure he's a lot better in our minds today than he was than he was alive. But he was but he was an impressive guy, and he's taken on almost a prophetic vibe where he thought he didn't have long to live, uh, felt a lot of urgency around packing a lot of life into a short time. And indeed, didn't have long to live. So, just this relationship between he and I, I've always felt like sort of the fuse was lit. <laughs> oh, really? I, yeah, and I needed to uh, pack a lot into life. So, I've I've tried to work hard and have a, have a really meaningful, full, rich, uh, intellectually stimulating 38 years, and you know, so so far, so good.
1: Well, that's that's kind of a. As you said, you were shot out of a cannon early into uh, making sure that you get the most out of life. So, what were some of the decisions that you've made so far to try to really live your life to its fullest?
0: Um, well, you know, on the, on the macro level, I think there's a couple of things that I've that I've done well. One is to get all the education you can. Um, I mean, I'm the kind of person that if it were Uh, financially viable for me, I would go to school all the time. I mean, if I could, if I, if I were richer, if I were richer than I am, I would, uh, you know, quit doing what I'm doing and go get 17 PhDs, you know, I'd get a new PhD every, every four years. And so, (laughs) you know, getting, getting all the education I, that I could has, has really opened up a lot of doors for me. And that's just, That's the the funny thing about it is it's open doors, but I don't do basically anything day to day that I went to school for uh, in sort of the most literal sense. But uh, in, in a broader sense, what I learned by getting a doctorate in psychology was how to interact with people, how to question my own beliefs and my own biases, One of the things that we would do in my doctoral program, I had to do thousands of hours of of face-to-face clinical work. You know, I trained to be a shrink. I trained to be a clinical psychologist. And so I would see patients, I would see clients, and the, the, the sessions were videotaped. And so we would sit, and, you know, the clients know this, of course, and they consent to it. But I would sit with my supervisor and my entire cohort, all of my classmates, after my therapy sessions and people would watch me try and intervene in the life of another human being to improve their life with my words. And that process is messy and complicated and boring at times. (laughs) You know, you really learn a lot about yourself when you literally walk around with a camera over your shoulder Um, having your interactions taped and letting a bunch of smart people critique those interactions. So some of those things were just, uh, you know, so formative in the way that I assess ideas, the way that I put ideas together, the way that I think about my own and other people's behavior. So yeah, on the one hand, I don't do much that I went to school for. And then on the other hand, it's just shaped me immensely.
1: Well, what did you um, start out your kind of education career with? What was your undergraduate degree in?
0: Yeah so my my undergraduate degree was in was in psychology as well. Okay. So I um I am the son of an investment manager. My dad is like a financial advisor, investment guy. And uh that was a good life for him. Like he he was always home when we went, you know, when we got home from school, he was always home at like 3:30. Um, and while that wasn't very appealing for me as a kid, because he was strict <laughs> <laughs> as I, you know, as I approached adulthood, I was like, you know, Hey, it's not a bad deal to, you know, make good money and be home every day at three thirty. And so, yeah, I, I initially sought that out like my freshman year, freshman and sophomore year. Uh, but then I, I chose to serve a mission for my church. So I was gone for a couple of years And during that time of sort of intense service and introspection, I got really interested in people. Um, And I lived in Southeast Asia, I lived in Manila, Philippines, without a lot of sort of physical comforts. And so my, um, my focus on money sort of dropped away during that time, I saw I, you know, became acquainted with basically a nation of people who were very happy, um, despite living in, you know, standards that would be you know, developing country standards by by American standards. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, but, you know, coming back from that mission, I was really focused on people, really focused on doing good in the world. Um, around that time, someone I was very close with developed an eating disorder and sort of the combination of that friend developing an eating disorder and my, my interest from my mission kind of pushed me toward a more helping profession So I I graduated undergrad in psychology with an eye to being a clinical psychologist uh, and went to grad school, you know, three days after I graduated. So knew knew I was going to push through
1: on the fast track. Well, I definitely want to continue down the path of uh, the education, but I have to kind of go back to the time that you spent in the Philippines as a missionary there and you mentioned that uh, seeing people without a lot of resources, but yet they were happy. And I've also, I didn't go for two years, but I've also done a short mission trip um, and really kind of saw the same thing. And certainly I've heard from other people who have experienced the same thing, that the the real pure joy that people who have nothing can have. Do you, since you are a very educated uh, <laughs> clinical psychologist, have some theory around why that is versus maybe how we see some people in the more developed world that that don't seem happy and seem to have a lot of stuff?
0: Well, you know, fast, fa- fast forward my life to today, and I, you know, sort of work in the psychology of money. And so this is, you know, something I've thought about a lot. And money is what we call uh, the, the clinical term for it is a hygiene factor, which is basically um, you know, the, the the total absence of money will make you miserable. But after you tick that box uh, of having adequate, you know, food, shelter, safety, things like that, um, after you tick that box, it, having a lot more doesn't make you a lot happier. You know, people who have um, $50 million are not appreciably happy, uh, appreciably more happy than people who have Uh, make $50,000 a year. Um, And so money is good for some things. I mean, I don't want to be, you know, unrealistic or sort of pie in the sky about these things. The things that money uh, is good for is buying you a safe place to live, buying you nutritious and delicious food, helping you spend time with the people you love and not, you know, work yourself to death. And, and after that, Uh, it doesn't help much. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in as much as I, you know, to be clear, I saw a lot of want and a lot of misery in the Philippines as well, but, but for the people who um, had sort of ticked that box of having the basic needs of life met in the Philippines, which, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take a whole lot in American dollars to make that happen. um, Those people were just as happy or happier than, than Americans. You know the other thing that's at play is that um our our thoughts and feelings about wealth uh aren't absolute. We benchmark to the people that we live around. You know, I can tell you I've got a home, I've got a home in Alabama and a home here in Atlanta. And my home in Alabama was nice and comfortable and but but relatively modest and that home uh was was the was a place where I was very happy and we've bought this huge house here in Atlanta, uh, in a neighborhood full of huge houses. And we're the, we're the smallest house, uh, in a neighborhood of huge houses. And it feels, you feel insecure about it. You feel unhappy. And it's a silly thing because, uh, in an objective way, this house is twice as big as, as my other home. Uh, but, that's not how we think about wealth. We think about wealth and benchmark our wealth and our happiness to the people we see every day and not some absolute level. So comparative notions of wealth are very much on the table and people in developing countries uh, are by and large surrounded by other people who are in their same situation. So mm-hmm. that's, that's their benchmark.
1: Interesting. So have you had some sessions with yourself about the comparative feelings that you're having?
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Physician, the the whole physician heal thyself thing. Now listen, if you meet someone who's got an advanced education in psychology, you can say for certainty that they're screwed up. I mean, that's <laughs> the only that's the, that's the only reason anyone goes into this field is because they're deeply broken. So I try my best, but I end up having to whine to my wife more than anything else.
1: Well, I'm sure she is a saint. So you you mentioned going to to graduate school three days after you graduated. What was the hurry?
0: Ah, uh, well, you know, I had taken two years off. That was um, that was part of the hurry. So mm-hmm. you know, I felt a, a little bit behind some of my peers because I had taken two years off of college to to do this mission. As it turns out, as it turns out, I, I wasn't that far behind uh, because if you spend your college, you know, if you spend your college playing video games and drinking like most of my <laughs> like most of my high school friends did, you you end up at about the same place. But um, you know, part of it was just interest. You know, part of it was just interest. I was legitimately excited to go to graduate school, and and graduate school for me was a was an absolute joy. It was just. Um, you know, some of the competitiveness of undergrad is gone. It's more collaborative. It's more project-based. And for me, it was really just enthusiasm for the subject matter. I mean, I'm a, um, I'm a real nerd about psychology. I, I just really enjoy it.
1: Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned kind of uh, getting into the PhD program, and then you know your clinical work where you spent hours. I love what you said, trying to change someone's life through your words. What was something that really came to you during that time about how to reach into people's lives to make a difference, but yet still leave them with the accountability and the um, ability to figure out things for themselves.
0: Well, you know, you know, what's fascinating is so psychology, the effect of therapy on mental wellness, on mental health is more pronounced than the effects of a pill like a a Lipitor on the amelioration of high cholesterol. So on the one hand, therapy is absolutely efficacious, right? Therapy works, people get better in therapy. So we have that's sort of exhibit A. Exhibit B is though, that the length of time that you go to school is not predictive of how much better people get in therapy. Um, The school of thought that you approach it from whether you know, you're you're Freudian or existential or humanist or cognitive behavioral That's not predictive of how much better people get Um, It doesn't matter if you have a bachelor's a master's or a PhD. Sorry to my parents who paid for my school (laughs) but um, What matters is the relationship? So that's what all the research says. So on the one hand you've got all this research that therapy works, uh, that's, that's hard, good scientific research. And then on the other hand, you're confronted with this sort of nebulous reality that the thing that's going to heal your client is not some witticism you're going to come up with. It's not some perfectly timed phrase. It's the fact that you're going to develop genuine rapport for one another. Um, And give them a safe space to have what's called emotionally corrective experiences. Basically, let them practice life with someone who's maybe more affirming and empathic and understanding than the people that they've encountered elsewhere in their life. So um, it's an exhausting thing to have to be connected to people um, all the time. I found it very, very rewarding and also very emotionally taxing uh, because therapy truly considered requires a great deal um, of your head and your heart and you have to be very on. It's not this bag of tricks kind of like you see in the movies where, oh, I'm going to say some brilliant thing and then you're going to have an insight and your life will be changed. It's sort of slow grinding work of relationship building and just re-experiencing life in a new sort of better ecosystem.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, are there some takeaways? I think it's fascinating that it's much more about the connection and the relationship. Are there takeaways that you've either come to yourself or that you could share with us mere mortals who aren't educated in psychology about how we can um, maybe interact with or provide that for the people in our lives to really help them and make an impact?
0: So one of the things that I was surprised, I think, and initially embarrassed about as a therapist was that I really didn't like some of my clients. And that's like not, you know, not anything you want to say out loud. I can only say it out loud now because I'm not a shrink, any, not you know, not a therapist anymore. But you would see certain people's names pop up um, on your calendar and kind of get a pit in your stomach because they were you know, they were unpleasant. They were a pain to work with. Um, And, you know, the old saying that hurt people hurt people, Um, you know, people who, people aren't coming to you unless they're having, you know, one of the worst times of their life in in many cases. And they're just not, (laughs) you know, not great to be around sometimes. But what I found in that process was, that no one is unlikable when you get to know their story. I can, I can really say that, you know, having seen thousands and thousands of clients, I can really say that people I disliked at first, if they would be vulnerable with me and if they would open up to me and you have enough context, I really came to see that there's not an unlikable person and that you can have rapport with anyone. Um, if they'll open up enough and, you know, you've got to do a little bit of that yourself, which as a therapist is tricky um, just because of sort of the boundaries and the rules around that. But, you know, in the workplace or in life, uh, you know, I have found that the more vulnerable people are, the more likable they are. And even behavior that seem totally aberrant um, and maladaptive and crazy makes a lot of sense when you get enough uh, of people's stories. So yeah, two big takeaways. No one's unlikable when you know enough of their story. And, and the second would be, you know, no one got out of bed in the morning to make you upset. You know, Nobody walks around trying to anger you or frustrate you or be obnoxious. They're just operating from a narrative that they've learned that's worked in other situations and sort of applying it in a way that doesn't work. So, yeah, those are my sort of two big takeaways.
1: So is that, would you maybe recommend or suggest uh, that if if you have someone in your life, whether it's an employee or even just someone you interact with on a regular basis or a family member, a friend that is a difficult person that you, uh, without even having the training, you you try to do more to learn about their story so that you can have that empathy?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'd absolutely recommend it. And you know, I'm I'm really a big fan of the work that the Arbinger Institute's done. They have a great book called Leadership and Self-Deception. But in that book, they talk about another thing that I observed, which is that people just have a real sixth sense for authenticity. And, you know, authenticity is one of those buzzwords that that gets thrown around a lot and nobody knows what it means. But it's kind of like the civil, uh, uh, the Supreme Court definition of pornography. You know, you know it when you see it. That's sort of the way I feel about authenticity. And people can smell fakery, <laughs> and people know when they're being condescended to. They know when they're being gimmicked or they're being behavioralized as part of an, uh, you know, a workplace intervention. But I think as you let your guard down and are, you know, truly kind to that person, if you you know, truly seek to sort of hit the reset button uh, and treat them uh, in a way that lets them out of the box that you've put them in. I think that it can be a very, a very powerful thing. And, you know, one thing I had to do as part of, as part of my training was go to therapy myself, you know, that was a, a big part of it is having to go to therapy myself and I can't tell you how much better my life was, you know, when I was in, in personal therapy and it's it's not something I do today. Um and it's it's silly that I don't do it. So I would I would really really work hard to try and destigmatize uh, going to therapy. I think it's something that everyone could can benefit from.
1: Interesting. I think yeah, I, you you don't get a chance in today's world many of us to talk about yourself. Um, You know, in a way, as you said, that's authentic, because so many people are either trying to appear to be something that they aspire to be, or they want others to think they are, or you're covering up hurts that you think may make you vulnerable. And, and so having a safe place to, to, to put who you are out there and work through that with someone that you trust, I think, yeah, there's certainly a lot of value to that, that many of us don't get today.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely worth doing.
1: So somewhere along the line, maybe after after you got out into practice, and, and maybe that was around the time that I kind of um, came across your path, you started dabbling, I believe, or maybe not just dabbling, uh, but getting involved more in kind of workplace psychology. Was that the next step after the the
0: individual therapy work? Well, what happened was I got offered a post. <clears throat> I got offered a post at a university in my home in my home state of Alabama. And I was very proud to have been offered this post, which was a sort of a mix of academic work and counseling work, which is, you know, a great blend for me. You know, you do a little bit of teaching class and a little bit of seeing clients. And I I was very excited about that until I saw what the pay was going to be. (laughs) And the the pay was so abysmally bad. You know, for someone who had just been to eight years of college and I just, you know, it was in like the high $30,000 and I was just sort of like, ah, this is ridiculous. You know, I mean, I was like, this is, I feel like they're not, you know, respecting my hard work. I feel like this job will be, you know, professionally enriching, but it's going to be such a low wage that I, that I won't be able to sort of live the life that I want to live. So I began exploring non-clinical applications of psychology because I was a little burnt out. I mean, that was the second consideration. I had had to get thousands of hours of these clinical hours um, to to graduate. And I was really burnt out of sort of just the intense focus of of being with someone, um, you know, in their most difficult moment, 50 hours a week is not an easy way to, to earn a living. And so, yeah, this is where I started to look into organizational psychology and actually landed at a firm here in Atlanta. I, was, uh, I had done a residency in, at, at Emory, and so I was in, in Atlanta already. And there was a firm here in Atlanta, most industrial organizational psychology firms passed on me because I just didn't have the, the background. I had a clinical background. Uh, but I found a firm here that was run by a former clinician, and so he had this you know belief that you could that you could cross over and saw something in me and so he offered me a job doing pre-employment assessments and leadership development training um for for mostly large healthcare systems and banks and so that's what I did yeah right right out of college was work for a small consultancy here in Atlanta
1: so pre-employment assessments um how did you kind of view that coming in with your clinical background or are we all just messed up as employees and you found that out before we even were hired or okay. <laughs> what what did you do with that
0: well it's interesting sort of my this is this is terrible but sort of my lasting takeaway from my my days of doing pre-employment assessment um, uh, was that people just there, that there was no relationship between wealth and competence.
1: Oh, really. <laughs> yeah. So there's hope for us that aren't right. that well.
0: <laughs> One of the, you know, I was vetting these bankers um, and healthcare executives, and we would give them sort of a half day, a half day interview, a battery of psycho uh, psychometric tests, sort of a short form IQ test, and I found really consistently that people with uh, people who weren't all that friendly and weren't all that bright had ascended to sort of high places and organizations. And it actually really bummed me out because I was very, you know, I was young. I was in my late twenties. I was idealistic. You know, I had not come from the world of work. I had not come from, I'd come from a academic clinical background and not had a lot of sort of reverence and esteem for, you know, rich bankers, which is funny to say now. But, you know, I I really thought these were sort of the masters of the universe. And I was quickly disabused of that idea.
1: (laughs) Do you have a theory as to why some of, you know, uh, that type of person does ascend to a a high leadership role in some organizations?
0: Oh, yeah, I think, um, I think part of it is a good old boys network. I mean, that this is in the deep south, right, that I'm doing these things. And, and some of them, Atlanta is not, really that way. But, you know, much of my work was in, you know, rural North Carolina, rural Georgia, rural Tennessee. And I mean, some of these places were just not meritocracies in the least. It was just people with, um, people from sort of vaunted families, people with a longstanding relationship with the community were being elevated to positions of organizational power that were way above sort of their mental pay grade. Um, You know, by virtue of knowing the right people, or by virtue of being a fixture. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the other thing that I that I came across in my research there was that there was actually, you know, general intelligence G. If in most jobs, if if you just had one indicator to look at, that's the best predictor of performance is general intelligence, because someone who's really sharp that can sort of cover for a host of ills. You know, if someone's very intelligent, maybe they're not all that organized, but they can still slap something together at the last minute that's pretty respectable. So, you know, uh, general intelligence was something that I always really looked for, except we found that it didn't really work in sales positions. <laughs> we found that people who were really smart, who were in sort of strict sales positions, uh, would either, either sort of over-explain things, they were too technical, Or they would just get bored they didn't find the the sales position sort of intellectually stimulating so yeah that was kind of a wake-up call to me to be you know to to see that not that great people in some instances had been elevated to positions of power and then see for other roles you were sort of actively looking for someone who wasn't that sharp.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is a great takeaway. (laughs) Did you come away from that? And I know, I believe you developed some of your own assessment testing was, is there something that you recommend to kind of identify that general intelligence in people?
0: Oh, you know, I, um, I am so far removed from sort of the specifics of that. It's been six or seven years since I've done that, so I would hesitate to say use this assessment or that. I love it the
1: the the, the side
0: step here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I but I will say pre employment assessment gets a bad shake, and I think that you know sometimes justifiably so because it's been misused or it's been. Um, you know, used to discriminate against people. And that's, you know, that's terrible. I I find, I I found that when we were going through different organizations, people had a hard time looking at it holistically, they would tend to sort of value and hone in on one piece, be it, you know, intellectual or relational or whatever, sort of what would matter to them. But I really believe in pre-employment assessment. And I, I think that when it's, Uh, I think that when it's, it's utilized in its purest form, it's a favor to both the organization and the candidate. Uh, Because I, you know, I look at myself at at different times in my life, I've been sort of so hungry for a job that I just would have taken anything. And, you know, it's a, it's a blessing. It's a gift to have someone say, Hey, you don't really, you know, this isn't great for you. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel a little removed from that world to say, use this, don't do that. But I, but in the broader, uh, in the broader scope, I think it gets a, a, an unfair shake. And I think it's actually a value add. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, was it during this time that you kind of decided to write your first book?
0: Yeah. So I gave a Ted, Ted X talk. So I gave a TEDx talk, um, called you're not that great. And it kind of took off. So it was, um, it, it, I did it in my sort of my hometown TEDx, right? So there in Huntsville, Alabama, where I was, excuse me, where I was living at the time. And I gave this sort of, you know, seven counterintuitive truths for for living a better life. That's sort of consistent with my, you know, with my personality of being very focused on living a meaningful life and trying to always be better, but also having, you know, more than a little more than a little bit of a Morrissey streak and <laughs> more than a little bit of a, you know, a sort of depressive streak. This was sort of my no-nonsense way of, of trying to talk about it. And it was really well-received. It got like 50,000 views the first weekend. And so I, I wrote a book. I wrote a, a short book that I self-published that was based on the framework that I had laid out in that TEDx talk. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that from that book, I have made literally hundreds of dollars. <laughs> Sorry, that
1: <laughs> hundreds,
0: hundreds of
1: dollars, life-changing money. Sounds
0: like hundreds. <laughs> I get my, uh, I tell you, I get my <laughs> quarterly statement from that book, and I take my family out for hamburgers and then it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, we
1: will definitely link to the, the TEDx talk because it's great. And we will also link to the book, maybe get you a couple of cents to add some ice cream to the hamburger there date. <laughs> but what was that process like of, of self-publishing a book? Is that something that um, you would recommend to others or was, you know, tell me about that.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't really recommend it. Um, I, I think for a couple of reasons. Well, oh, let me let me give a caveat there. If you have an enormous audience, you know, I have a couple of friends who have self-published because their sort of list or you, you know their audience, their captive audience is so large that they can sell a meaningful number of books without needing the help of of a of a big publisher. And for me, I, that was not the case of, of me now or then probably so that it, it wasn't great. Um, you know, the second thing is that I think, uh, you know, since then I'm I'm publishing now my third book with a major publisher, um, this later this year and my editor, you know, my copy editor does so much to improve the book, both, you know, both the aesthetics, um, you know, the aesthetics, the marketing, the content, my editor, I have a British editor who is like everything you would want, and sort of a salty British editor who's totally humorless and totally merciless on my copy. And he, you know, I just submitted a three hundred page book, and he said you got to rewrite a hundred pages of it. And uh, I just finished that, and the book is so much better as a result. And so it's just, it's just, uh, I've I've gleaned a lot of value from working with larger publishers. Uh, and you know, you take a you take a smaller cut, but uh, it's been a much better experience for me.
1: Well, I definitely want to talk about the second, third, and fourth book, but I want to go back to kind of the "You Are Not That Great" TEDx talk in the book, which I have. I bought one of the first copies. I supported you and your your um, fast food addiction with your family. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me what the what the kind of general theme was of the talk in the book.
0: Yeah, I think the general theme is it's only when we accept our own fallibility, impermanence, and mediocrity that we're actually able to build a, a, great lives, uh, a great life for ourselves. Like, the paradox is that only as we accept our sort of normality are we able to build something that's better than normal. So, you know, to explain... Pretty much everyone suffers from what, uh, you know, what psychologists call overconfidence bias, which is, you know, famously, there's studies that show that it's, it's worse in men, which is uh, not a surprise to anyone. But, you know, it's uh, like 94% of men think they're uh, more athletic than average. 100% of men surveyed uh, thought they were friendlier than average. You know, 96% thought they were uh, funnier than average. So we walk around <laughs> in life with this sort of elevated view of ourselves, and it keeps us distant from one another. Uh, it keeps us blaming one another. It keeps us from sort of understanding where our, our real strengths and our, our real weaknesses lie because we sort of apply this blanket of, you know, this, this blanket of supremacy to the way that we think about ourselves. But then there's some small faction of people who are, um, you know, depressed and have have a very low view of themselves. And so basically what I'm advocating for in the book is trying to find that sweet spot. But I am sort of a believer that it's only when you stop taking yourself so seriously and sort of own up to who you are that you become uh, the best that you can be.
1: Mm Mm-hmm and well, I can definitely recommend the book, and as I said, I'll link up to it. It's a great read, and I think um, you make some really good points in there about how we view ourselves.
0: I appreciate it. I'm I'm three dollars richer for your for your having bought it.
1: I'm trying to do everything I can to support the family.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> so after you wrote the "You're Not That Great" book, you realized that was not going to um, make you Oprah money. Um, <laughs> where did you go from there?
0: You know, this is, this is embarrassing. The timeline's a little fuzzy, but, so, but somewhere in there, um, I began working with a number of financial services firms. And what I found was that very consistently, they were my uh, brightest clients. <laughs> they were my friendliest clients. They were my best paying clients. And I said, "Hey, I want some more of this." <laughs> and I was also becoming sort of familiar with this idea that niches make riches and and you know William Tincup and others sort of in the h r community did a lot to 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 emphasize that to me, but you know i when I started out, I started my business in the throes of the great recession i mean i I think I jumped out in. You know, late 2009, the modern the market bottomed in March of 2009. I had a six month old child. I mean, it was just not. um, You know, it was just not. (laughs) So, what were you
1: thinking? Why did you do that then?
0: Well, I hated my job. You know, I was um, my employer was uh, you know doing some shady things, mistreating some folks in the office. I became sort of the go-to shrink. And I had, you know, people crying in my office every day about the things that were happening to them. And I said, you know, this is too much. I was getting to the office every day uh, and drowning my sorrows in Tums and Advil and Diet Coke, uh, you know, the way that only a good Mormon kid can. So I was, (laughs) so I was, uh, I was miserable, you know, I was just really upset. And so I said, you know what? I, I think I need to go out on my own, and so everyone thought I was crazy. I mean, I was quitting a lucrative job to start a behavioral economics consultancy in Alabama, <laughs> in the you know in the in the middle of the Great Recession. It wasn't, you know, if you saw the business plan, you wouldn't invest. But uh, but yeah, that's that's what I did, just out of sort of uh, personal personal need. I just couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm noticing that I really like working with these finance clients. I'm very interested in it. Um, the, the other cool thing about the market being such a data-rich environment is for a psychologist, it's sort of a dream because you have all this data against which to regress your ideas about market sentiment and, uh, you know, sort of the psychological variables. And so, yeah, I sort of decided to just really rebrand in earnest and go hard towards working with financial services institutions and, and become an expert in this world of behavioral finance, um, which is sort of the, the psychology of investment decision making.
1: Interesting. So, so what's the big takeaway? How do we feel about money? What, what do we need to think about money in order to have more of it?
0: <laughs> yeah. So, well, there's, you know, I, I write in my, my last book was called the laws of wealth. And I write in there uh, about something I call wall street bizarro world, which is, you know, sort of a take on the bizarro Superman, which is sort of the, you know, the comic book character who's the opposite of Superman. So things on wall street, you know, things in the world of investing are, are sort of topsy turvy relative to our everyday experience. So for instance, you know, uh, if I ask you what you were going to be doing five minutes from now, you would say, I'll be having a, a scintillating conversation with Daniel Crosby. If I ask you what you're doing five years from now, you would have no idea. Um, well, the market's the exact opposite. You know, we can say with a lot of certainty what it's going to look like many years from now. We can have, you know, no certainty at all about what it'll look like in the short term. So that's that's very different. You know, another thing is that in the market, doing less tends to get you more. So there's a there's a study I cite in the Laws of Wealth that's got to be one of my favorite studies of all time. Fidelity, you know, the big uh, retail uh, financial services firm, Fidelity said we're going to look at all of our retail clients, sort of all of our mom and pop clients, and we're going to discern what are the behaviors that set the best of them apart from the rest of the pack. So we're going to look at the people with the best returns and we're going to see what they did differently. And so they called up these people, they pulled their accounts, they called them up and tried to do these long form interviews with them. And they found that the two unifying factors were that they were either dead or that they had forgotten about their accounts. And so a lot of what I, you know, a lot That's of, fascinating. I, yeah. so a lot, you know, a lot of what I end up doing in as a sort of a behavioral finance specialist is just helping people and and helping financial advisors to help their people just sort of adapt to the environment that they're in because it's, it's just such a different world. And, you know, our brains are, you know, Homo sapiens is about 200,000 years old. They've found 154,000 year old brains or, you know, skulls in, in Africa that look just like our skulls today. So we've got, you know, financial markets that are 400 years old and we're using 200,000 year old equipment to try and navigate them. So we're pretty much, you know, we're wired to be horrible money making, uh, to make horrible money decisions. You know, every sort of impulse we have about money nearly is wrong. And so a lot of, a lot of what I do, you know, spend my time talking and writing about is, is just how to do less. Uh, and, and simplify that process.
1: So do you have, have you been able to distill that into like you had seven tips for realizing that we're not that great? Have you, have you kind of been able to get, you know, a 30 second version or what that might look like to, to tell us how we should view money?
0: well in the in the laws of wealth i have um, you know i have 10 commandments the first half of the book is sort of my 10 commandments of investor behavior mm-hmm. so i'll give you a couple probably all 10 is too lengthy but you know i'll give you a couple of them uh, one is you control what matters most you know a lot of people think you know donald you know donald trump's tweets are what's going to determine whether or not they can retire or you know the geopolitical events or you know interest rates or whatever sort of externality but all of, uh, you know, all of the research shows that just basic, simple behavior, you know, simple but not easy behavior, like setting aside a little money every month, managing your fees, working with a competent professional, sort of very basic stuff is the best predictor uh, of whether or not you reach your financial goals. So a lot of what I try and do in that first chapter is just get people to wrest back power, you know, just get people to rest back that control. And say, look, I'm not, uh, I'm not as reliant on sort of the vagaries and the volatility of the market as, I'm, as I might think. So that's, you know, one thing that I think is, is powerful. Um, you know, another thing that I talk about in Chapter 6, I say that your life is the best benchmark. We talked earlier about how comparative we can get with money. And, you know, we really tend to try and keep up with the Joneses or we try and keep up with the S&P. And uh, I have some fascinating research in there. My, my favorite study in there uh, is a study that, that was around low-income savers. So they had people who were barely scraping by and they were trying to get them to save more money. And it's, of course, enormously difficult when you're barely scraping by to, to save this money for a rainy day. And they tried rewards and they tried punishments and nothing worked until they showed them a picture of their family um, before every time that they made a big financial decision and when they showed them a picture of their kids right their family mm-hmm. before they made a big financial decision their savings behavior ticked up 250 percent and so you know i'm i try and infuse meaning and purpose into every every walk of my life and and finance and investing aren't the most intuitive place to do that perhaps but i think they they're still powerful there but yeah there's there's 10 of them that are kind of like that so the second book, what was your second book called? So I, my second book was called Personal Benchmark. And I, I co-authored, that's you know a, a whole book on this notion of sort of goals-based, purpose-based investing. And I co-authored that with uh, the founder of Brinker Capital, a gentleman named Chuck Widger, um, who is uh, you know a great friend and mentor to this day, and they remain my biggest client. So uh, yeah, we wrote a ho- whole book on this, this idea of sort of purpose-based, goals-based investing.
1: Okay, that's, that sounds interesting as well. And again, we'll link to these in the show notes. So Purpose-Based Investing, The Laws of Wealth, what is the next book about?
0: So yeah, the next book, The Laws of Wealth, is, is all about those 10 commandments we were just touching on. Those are found in the Laws of Wealth. Mm-hmm. That's probably, that's probably to me, that's the best sort of introduction to my work. That's the most accessible and I think probably the most comprehensive and that book got named the best investment book of 2017. So I'm super proud of that book.
1: Well-deserved.
0: Well-deserved. Thank deserved. you.
1: And, and the book that's coming out that the British editor is chopping up, what's that yeah. going to be about?
0: <laughs> Love you, Craig. Um, the <laughs> British, yeah, that book is called The Behavioral Investor. And it is about the societal, neurological, and physiological constraints on good decision-making which is a white knuckle thrill ride of a read. I can already tell you.
1: (laughs) I love it. When an author describes their book as a white knuckle thrill ride of a read about behavioral finance.
0: (laughs) If you've always wondered what are the societal impediments to my making good money decisions, boy, have I got you.
1: I love it. When will this come out? I can't
0: wait. I'm lining up already. It's coming out on my birthday because I'm basic. It's because. coming out on it's coming out on October
1: 16th. <laughs> oh, we have to wait. Uh, because I'm because
0: I'm adorable. <laughs>
1: yeah, so. Well, speaking of kind of the uh the thrill ride here and your basic adorableness, you are one of the f- funniest people I have ever come across. Um, so I have to kind of try to use my lack of psychology training to understand if someone follows you on Twitter, for example, it's an almost daily, um, good tips, uh, funny quips, um, great observations, but also some good solid investing advice. Um, tell me how you became so funny. Is this hereditary? Did you develop this through hard knocks or what
0: happened? my my parents are profoundly unfunny i feel like you should <laughs> i feel like that should just we should just get that out of the way right now my mom and dad are lovely people but they're not very funny um i think i learned to be funny um because I was a, a fat Mormon kid in Alabama. I mean, that's 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 the that's the best <laughs> that's the thing. Path. <laughs> that's the path. So, if you want, if you if you really want to be funny, I'd suggest being a fat Mormon kid from Alabama. Yeah. So, I mean, when you grow up. Um, <laughs> with, at the at the sort of the Venn diagram intersection of those three things, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a coping mechanism. And then, you know, in my in my later years, um, I mean, I find I find life kind of absurd in the existential sense, right? Like that we're um, that we're thrown here, like nobody, you know. You didn't ask to be born. You didn't ask to go through the things that you go through. We live in this crazy world that's full of, you know, Donald Trump is our president, et cetera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we live in this sort of world that if you don't learn to laugh at it, you'll cry. And so it's just, you know, it's, it's a coping mechanism. Um, and it's just something I think I developed by just by virtue of feeling like an outsider and feeling picked on and, and feeling like that was a way to connect.
1: Mm-hmm. Has it been able to translate into do people engage you now um, because of they found you through your
0: humor or connected with you through humor? Well, I feel like it's a, um, I feel like it's a very effective teaching device. I mean, one thing that I try and infuse into all of my speaking is a little levity and i i really do think that humor is is the spoonful of sugar that gets people to remember the things that you've said Ab- absolutely i think it's a it's a value there uh, you know it can also be uh, it can also be an impediment you know i've uh, i'm naturally quite sarcastic and i've had to turn that off at home you know i've i've really had to learn to not be in not be sarcastic around my wife or my children because i think that um I think that it can be used as a sort of a power thing. It's something that people use sometimes to keep other people uh, walking on eggshells or keep them uncertain or powerless. And so I I try and use that for for good in my speaking. I try not to use it for evil in my personal life.
1: What's the most cutting comment or feedback that you've ever gotten from speaking?
0: (laughs) This is great. I I know you remember. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I remember. So you know, quick aside, my this this you're not that great video that kind of blew up. I mean, it, again, like you know, tens of thousands of views, which was huge for me, um, in that first weekend, and you know, like hundreds of thumbs up on YouTube. I remember that first thumbs down just broke me. I just broke me and i was just like who is this you know we're keeping it e-free on your podcast but you know who's this son <laughs> son of a gun who you know who gave me this thumbs down and it just hurt my feelings so much and i'm you know i've gotten a you know my last book 75 five stars and like three one stars and they just hurt so much than the not
1: so that much we're more. counting not that you're yeah counting. <laughs> no not that i check it every day
0: <laughs> Not that I check it every day or benchmark my personal well-being to it. No, but um, I was on I, I was on stage in Canada in Toronto recently, and I was telling a, a therapy story about about a woman I had uh, my my first ever client, and I have this story I tell about doing therapy with her, and I mentioned that she was a beautiful uh, a beautiful graduate student, and that was the extent of my you know, sort of perseveration on her looks. That's all, you know, I said, it was a beautiful graduate student, my first ever client. And so I got a uh, this lengthy written feedback that was like, your comments on your client's appearance were totally unwarranted and unnecessary. It makes you seem like a creep and a pervert. I was just oh, like, wow. whoa." <laughs>
1: That was a a trigger, obviously, that you get with someone.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I was just like, ah, this seems, you know, this just seems like the punishment didn't fit the crime. But, you know.
1: Well, maybe put your your psychology hat on for me again. You know, you are a person who's out there in the public eye, uh, whether that's on Twitter at Daniel Crosby, right? Is that where we can find you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, whether you're on Twitter, and again, I'm sure some of the things you say draw some controversy. You're a speaker. You're, you're checking your Amazon reviews periodically, not daily. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> no, it's daily. <laughs> it's like daily. it should be. Okay. It should be said that it's a daily ritual. <laughs>
1: and we're refreshing while we're talking. <laughs> um, so, how can you? what advice would you give yourself and the rest of us with how to deal with that kind of uh, the world that we live in today, where we we have f- both forms of validation and um, whatever the opposite of validation is available to us uh, with the click of a button or the uh, turning on of the phone.
0: Well, yeah. So here's some profoundly disingenuous advice coming from me is I, I think you should remove yourself from it as uh, to the extent possible, right? I mean, if I were, I have a friend who's an accomplished author and he will not go to his Goodreads page. And you know, he's, he's very smart not to, um, because you know, inevitably he's an award-winning author. Um, but yeah, inevitably there's people who are saying things that aren't nice. So one thing is to just avoid it to the extent possible. But you know, I had a friend tell me actually right after I got that first thumbs down and I was making some joke about it on Facebook and he said to me, you know, there's, there's two kinds of people in the world. You know, there's people who give TED Talks and there's people who sit in their, you know, mom's basement covered in Dorito crumbs and, and thumbs down other people's TED Talks. You know, mm-hmm. which, which one do you want to be? And so there is, there is a level of criticism inherent in doing anything. And, uh, you know, I think that creating is basically what we're all here to do. And if you're going to be a creator, if you're going to put new ideas and new things into the world, uh, criticism is part and parcel of that. And so I think you just have to, to recognize it for what it is. And, you know, to bring it full circle, I'm sure these people that leave me salty reviews, I'm sure if I understood their story, it would make sense. And I I really do mean that I, I know that, you know, those things, those triggers that seem, you know, inconsequential or overblown to me, I'm I'm sure that there's a reason for it.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yesterday, I was listening to a radio broadcast. My mom suggested I listen to, it and and it was from the Moody Bible Institute. And the commercial in between was talking about the founder of the Moody Bible Institute. I forget his name, but Mr. Moody, uh, when he started, was criticized by others for how he was going about his ministry, and they said that he has a famous quote that said. I like the way I'm doing things better than I like the way you're not doing things. (laughs) 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 I was like, I had to stop the car. I got to write that down because that often, as you said, you know, sometimes it really, we do have to think, you know, that person may have a story behind their salty comment, but sometimes people who are criticizing those who are doing things are people who are not doing things. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's what's the the poem about the, you know, the man in the ring and all that. But yeah, that's, that's a, it's a powerful idea.
1: Mm-hmm. So what's next for Daniel Crosby, Dr. Yeah.
0: Daniel Crosby. We need to get that eight years of education <laughs> value here. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. What's next for me? You know, I'm, I'm very happy where I'm at. I'm building um, I'm building, some technology tools right now that I'm excited about. Can't say much about, but I've just got funding for some technology tools to try and take the things that I talk about um, every day and bring them to an advisor's desktop. You know, um, one of the great frustrations of my life and perhaps yours, not to put words in your mouth, is that, you know, you go speak and you're well-received and people are engaged and they eat it up, but I always wonder about the degree to which, you know, application takes place. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to build you know, online courses, um, investment strategies, technology, all of these things that are sort of the lived embodiment of all the things I've been writing and speaking about. So that's, that's sort of the next phase for me is application.
1: Mm, interesting. So where can we find about you, your business, your books? Is there a central place to, to connect with you online?
0: Yeah, so I have a podcast called Money, Mind, and Meaning that you can, you know, find on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I have a firm called NocturneCapital.com. You can check out. There's a lot of blog posts and things there. Uh, and then my books that, uh, you know, Amazon's probably the easiest place to get my books. And if you're interested, I'd, I'd start with the laws of wealth and uh, read those 10 commandments.
1: And Five-star reviews are always appreciated on Amazon, correct? And on on Apple
0: Podcasts. (laughs) You know that I'll see it. I check it. I check it. I check it every night. This is so sad. I check it every night before I go read my kids a bedtime story. So that... It determines whether the story is happy or sad. You should, prob-
1: <laughs> you should probably talk to someone about that behavior. <laughs> I,
0: uh, I need a shrink. It's true.
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate you so much, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Your Twitter feed gives me life. Um, and you are a person that I just adore. And I thank you for being here on this podcast
0: with me today. It's been a joy. Thanks for having me. If you want to raise your game at work, you've got to raise your impact. Find out Jennifer's 10 best strategies to make more of an impact at work at jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways. That's jennifermcclure.net slash 10 ways.